0: Okay, hello, good afternoon. Welcome to the Science Festival. Have you enjoyed it so far? (laughs) Excellent. Well, thank you very much for coming and joining us this afternoon. My name is Jonathan, and on behalf of myself and the volunteer team here today, we're very pleased to have you here with us. I'm extremely excited to welcome one of my favourite speakers, Helen Scales, who you may have already read her existing books. She's written one on seahorses and one on seashells, and she's about to release another one all about fish, and this is her special prelude just for you guys on what her new book is about. So please, could you give Helen Scales a very warm welcome? Thank you so much. First of all, um, I hope you're all having a wonderful festival. Um, Yes, I am Helen Scales. I'm a writer and a marine biologist. And for any of you who don't know me already, and just in case you're wondering, uh, that is my real name, Helen Scales. (laughs) Um, So, I'm here today to talk to you about a fabulous group of creatures that live in the oceans, one that's very dear to my heart, and these are the fish. And hopefully, I'm going to convince you that these are animals that are fascinating and very interesting and worthy of our attention, because I think that fish have a bit of a raw deal these days. Um, A lot of people really just think of them as food, and it's very hard to connect maybe the animals that we eat to living creatures in the wild, especially if basically all we get to see is things on our plates. Um, I mean, fish fingers, this is a can of tuna that's even called chicken of the sea. So how on earth are we supposed to relate this uh, to, to animals that we eat? The other thing I think is that fish have a real reputation for being smelly and cold and slimy. And they suffer really with from, from having quite a bad pad press, you know, people have ideas that there's things they can't do, um, that perhaps they're not quite as interesting as other creatures on earth, and I'm hopefully going to change people's views of that uh, today. I'm sure maybe not you, some of you are already fans of fish, perhaps you'll like them even more by the end, um, and, and yeah, I'm going to lift the lid on this group of creatures and, uh, and show that they can just be, and they are, some of the most fascinating animals on the planet. And uh, maybe I'll also just encourage maybe one or two of you to think about becoming fish watchers. We have a lot of bird watchers in this world, people who are fascinated by watching birds. I think we need some more fish watchers. I'm one. I can very much recommend it. Um, Go out and see these animals in the wild and understand and just enjoy them for the wonderful things that they are. So fish are all sorts of different animals, really, different sizes, all sorts of things they get up to. And just to give you a bit of a flavor of the kind of things they do... Um, here's a rundown of things like the Greenland shark. So, this is an enormous shark, six or seven meters long. And scientists have just found out that these guys live for 500 years. Extraordinary thing. The longest lived vertebrates on the planet. Their hearts beat five times a minute. They eat polar bears. These are amazing creatures. But not all the fish are quite so impressive. There are tiny little things like this. This is the world's smallest fish. Doesn't live for 500 years. Maybe only lives for a few months. These guys live in peat swamps in Borneo. Um, was the world's smallest vertebrate until somebody found an even smaller frog. So anyway, they're the second world's smallest uh, vertebrates in the world. So fish can be huge, they can be tiny. They can do some extraordinary things. The bluefin tuna. Uh, these guys are, again, they're eaten a lot. If you like sushi, if you've perhaps been to Japan, if you have lots of money, you might have spent some money on uh, actually eating these things. And, um, but in the wild, they get up to some extraordinary things. And these guys are some of the master navigators and swimmers through the ocean. Now, scientists have used satellite tags. They've tagged these guys with um, transponders to track where they go in the oceans and discovered that they go on immense journeys. Now, one in particular, I mean, they all generally do this, but there was one fish that was tagged, and it went on this journey. It, basically, they all start life. This is the Pacific bluefin tuna. There's a few species. This guy started life Uh, was born off the coast of Japan, and then swam to California, where they feed. It then went back again, and then it went back again. (laughs) And this was all in the course of about 20 months, so less than two years, and in total it swam 20,000 kilometers. That is the circumference of the entire planet. If you could swim all the way around, this fish did that. It's just extraordinary. They can navigate their way, they find their way through the oceans, go these enormous long distances. But not all fish are our big swimmers. I'm going to show you this little video clip that I shot in Fiji when I was snorkeling, fish-watching, um, recently. Hang on, here we go. And I was just kind of interested in these colourful fish. This is a trigger fish here. This lovely guy here. will come back to trigger fish. And I was just sort of looking at what was swimming around. I thought, well, it's a lovely colourful fish. It's quite pretty. And I didn't realise that there's something else in this shot. And I don't know if any of you can spot there is a hiding fish. I'll give you a hint, it's here. It's a bit blurry there, so I went actually, once I discovered that, once I realized what was down there, I was very excited because I don't normally spot these, they're so well camouflaged. It's a stonefish, can you see it now? (laughs) No? (laughs) There is a fish there, honestly. Um, Okay, I'll give you hints. Uh, There is an eye, although it's kind of shadowy. Its eye is just in that little dark patch and its mouth is there. So these are extraordinarily well camouflaged fish. They do not swim fast at all. Their lives are all about sitting still on a reef, pretending to be a rock, waiting for its food to come near to it. So fish can be extremely brilliant at swimming huge distances, and they can also basically just want to stay home and not move at all. They do all sorts of different wonderful things. So, um, so yes, today I'm going to introduce you to lots of more fascinating fish and give you some more ideas of things they get up to. And I'm also going to bust some myths. Now, I think probably the best-known myth about fish is this one. Now, how many of you have ever heard it said that goldfish have a seven-second memory? Hands up. Anyone heard that? Yeah? Lots of you have heard that. Yes. I mean, I certainly hear it all the time. Seven-second memory that a uh, goldfish swims around a bowl and basically just forgets what it did seven seconds ago. It's not true. I don't quite know where this came from, um, probably because it's only been fairly recently that scientists have found ways of studying the brains of fish and understanding what's going on inside. It's quite tricky to do that. But we are finding out some wonderful things about what fish get up to and how they can be much more smart and clever and remember things much more than perhaps their reputation um, kind of tells us. And one of my favorite examples to show just how smart fish can be is this little guy. This is the frill fin goby. He lives in uh, the Gulf of Mexico and he lives on the coast. Uh, So basically along the shoreline, um, along a rocky shore, just like here in Britain we've got rocky shores and there are rock pools that form as the tide goes down. Now what these little fish do, when the tide is up and there's lots of water, they swim around and basically look at all of the shape of the seabed. And map it out in their minds. They remember their neighborhood, basically. And they work out when the tide comes down where the (laughs) rock pools are going to form. Because they could get into a situation where they are stuck in a rock pool when the tide is out with something they didn't want to be with. Maybe a predator is going to try and eat them. But because they've remembered the whole of their neighborhood, they know how to escape. And they do this by jumping. And it's quite a remarkable thing. I found I don't have any video footage, so you're going to have to just imagine it. But I also I did draw this. It's not quite as uh, nuanced as probably what it really happens in the wild. Um, this is uh, my goby is the, the blue fish, and then the predator is the, the octopus. Um, so, uh, so what they're doing is this: the tide is in. That's the blue line. We've got the seashore and the green. And as the tide comes down, um, this little fish is getting chased by um, by the octopus, and he's getting stuck in a, in a pool. So what is it going to do? And it has to decide which way to jump. Uh, does it go this way? Well, probably not because that's dry and that means it's not going to do very well on a bit of dry land. It does need to be in the water. So, but it, it knows, in fact, that it needs to jump in a particular direction. And even if it can't see the next door pool, um, it has remembered where it is. So without being able to see it, it basically knows which way to turn, how far to jump, and it will jump into the next door pool wherever it is on its little piece of habitat, so it jumps to safety. And, in fact, it probably will jump a bit more just to make sure it's right out of the way of that predator. Now, <laughs> now I mentioned the seven-second memory thing. Well, the reason I bring this up, apart from the kind of fact that fish jump out of the way, which is pretty cool, um, scientists have studied these little guys, and they've taken them off the, from their habitat, kept them in an aquarium tank for a few weeks, so up to, I think up to a month or so, and then popped them back on the reef, Uh, on the shore and they remember those maps so they've remembered exactly this this layout of their neighbourhood and so if it happens again they need need an escape route they know exactly what to do so they definitely remember, they learn about their surroundings and they learn how to escape when they need to so that is pretty cool now um, there are other things about fish that might come as a bit of a surprise to you and one of them is that fish can be quite noisy um, I guess some of you, I'm sure I did when I was a kid, would have read stories with my mom and dad. Um, and there were animals and I had to make the sounds of the animals, right? So and we all know the sound of a cow. We can do the sound of a cat and a dog and a duck. But did you ever get to that point where it's like, and here's the fish. And what noise does the fish make? And you're like, I don't know. Does it kind of go? It, that's all I could think of. Um, Because I just assumed that fish don't make any noises. But they do. And I've got some footage here of a fish uh, singing. Um. (laughs) Go on, go on. You can do it. Here's a little song I wrote. I want to sing it note for note. Don't worry. Be happy. Don't worry. Be happy now. Okay, maybe not that one, but um, I do love this. Does anyone have one of these? Because um, I, I would love it. If you don't want it anymore, please do come, because I, um, I think they were really big in the 90s, these singing fish. They would go off if you walked past or sang to them. Anyway, okay, so that isn't a singing fish, but they do make uh, lots of sounds. We don't hear them really because those sounds don't come out of the sea. Sometimes in some places they are noisy enough that you can hear them, but really you have to get your head in. Um, or use hydrophones to record the sounds of fish. So I'm going to play you some real sounds of fish now that have been recorded in various places and see what you think they actually do sound like. Kind of sounds like a pig, doesn't it? And funnily enough, this guy's called uh, the Grunt, tell why. Uh, so this is the guy, uh, they live in the Caribbean. Um, let's try the next one. What does this one sound like? Oops, no, let's go back to the beginning. No. In my pond at the moment. I'm a bit worried it's cold today, I don't know how they're getting on. This is the think, called the, the Atlantic Croaker, again, good name. Um, let's see, we've got one more. Noisy fish. Something strange. I don't know what that sounds like. That's uh, this guy, it's a talking catfish, it's actually quite a popular pet, so you might, if you keep fish, you might have one of these, you might hear it talking to you. So fish can be really noisy, there's lots of sounds going on in the oceans that are made by fish. Um, and they, um, they do it for various different reasons. They're basically communicating, just like any other animal. Um, they're talking to each other. They're Often it's males that are talking to females or trying to woo them. I think that deep c- uh, croaking sound was a male trying to attract a female. You kind of see that might be quite effective. Um, they also uh, ch- talk to each other when they're fighting. Now, these guys, piranhas, are notorious for being very ferocious. They're probably not quite as dangerous as they are made out to be. I mean, we're okay, but they do fight with each other. Uh, They are quite fighty, fighty fish. Um, And we've discovered that there are three different calls that piranhas make. I don't have recordings, I'm afraid. I'm going to have to just describe them to you. But they have three distinct calls, so they almost have a bit of a language. Um, And this is all surrounding the times when they fight with each other. So when two of them come head to head, um, and they're kind of just sort of seeing what's going on, they will bark at each other loudly. Um, And this is a warning kind of saying, you know. I'm going to just, just you, just, just, no fights, please. Um, then if a fight does break out, then they will have a deep thudding sound as they're swimming around trying to bite each other. And then eventually one of them will win, and the victorious fish will see the other one off with a high volley chirps, basically chirps at the other fish and says, you don't come back. Mm-hmm. Um, so we see this, and we've watched them and listened to piranhas and know that they have these different calls at different times. So they're using sound in a way that's really quite, quite clever. Um, So how do they make these sounds? Maybe some of you are already wondering, well, how are they making these sounds? We make sounds with air from our lungs. I'm talking to you now because I'm filling up my lungs and pushing air across my vocal cords. Um, Most fish don't have lungs. Some of them do. We will come back to that. Um, But they make some wonderful sounds with a different piece of their body. I should say, first of all, um, they do use things like their teeth. So the grunt was grinding its teeth together. Um, The piranhas grind their teeth together. Some fish have tendons which they strum like guitars. But a lot of them make sounds, and this guy does, this is a toadfish, with a particular part of their body. Um, that's a diver, breathing in that sound. Um, <laughs> uh, so a toadfish makes sounds uh, in a way that lots of fish do, and that is using a, uh, an organ inside their body called the swim bladder. Um, Now, this is essentially a uh, a balloon full of air. I don't have any actual swim bladders to show you today, but I have some good models here. Um, And this is how many fish make some sounds. Now, I think to find out a bit more about how they do that, I'd like a couple of volunteers to come and have a go at being fish. I think there's a big hand went up straight in the middle there. Oh, no, no little girl, sorry. You can come next time. Yes, you were the first up. And one more. How about down here? Yes, up you come. Brilliant. Um, So what we're going to do, if you can make your way to the front... We're going to have a go at seeing what sort of sounds we can make with, uh, with balloons. So these are our model swim bladders. Um, what I would like you to do is grab some balloons or grab a balloon and anything else on this table that you'd like to use or just use your hands. So what kind of sounds... Would you like a balloon? There you go. What sort of kind of sounds can we make with a, with a balloon? Do you want to have a go? What do you think? What could we do? What could be a noisy thing to do with a balloon? Excellent. Yes, we could kind sort of squeak them, and fish do do that. Mine's not very squeaky, actually. Um, that's cool. Yes, some fish will do that. What else can we do with a balloon that would make a sound? Ah, Do you want one of these? You could untie it. You could try to. I've got some here that would be quite easy. To- yes, that's good. They do do that. We'll come back to the untying in a second. A lot of fish do pull. They have a muscle which they will stretch. I think my balloon's a bit too tight, but it works with yours. They stretch out their swim bladders and let them ping back into place, and that makes a sound. Oh, there's that. That's quite good, isn't it? Donk. So they do that. I should say that the fish fill up their swim bladders either in two ways. Some of them have a gland that sticks on the outside, and gas diffuses into their, um, from their blood into their swim bladders. And some of them have a connection through to their guts, so they can swim to the to surface, gulp in a, um, a mouthful of air, and it goes into their swim bladder. So that's how they fill them up. What else do you think? What else can we do to make some sound? Do you want to try popping one i've got some needles here if you're very careful what do you think do you want me to anyone who is not doesn't like the sound of popping balloons put your fingers in your ears now i'll give you the popping device do you want to see if it works and we'll all stand back yay do you want to do the same i think we should all pop a balloon do you want to do that too pop mine too okay fish don't do that but i just thought it'd be quite fun uh Um, okay, there's another thing that fish do. Perhaps, maybe with one of these. What do you think? Can to try one of those? What do you think you could do? Make some sound? Yes. Fish use their swim bladders as drums, basically. And in fact, I've got a picture of one that does that particularly. We've seen him already. Uh, this guy, the, the trigger fish, uses its fins and drums uh, the sides of its body where it's got the swim bladder pushed up against to it. And yeah, they basically make a kind of drumming sound with their balloons, uh, with their swim bladders, um, which is pretty cool. And then there's one other thing that actually we can't really do here, but a lot of fish, that toadfish, has a muscle on its um, swim bladder which vibrates very fast, and that makes that humming sound. Um, and that's, that's how they do that. But there is something else that I want to do. Let's, I think we've all got one we can do. Have you got one? Yes, let's, I'll do two. These fish don't do this. I'm going to leave that one. This is something else that fish don't do with their swim bladders, but let's let them go anyway, shall we? Oh, that's really quiet. <laughs> Yay, that's better. Brilliant. Now, one thing, they don't, the swims, the fish don't let all the air straight out of their swim ladders, but some of them, we've got one left, some of them will let a little bit out at a time. Let's see if I can make this. Okay, so some of them do do that, and they do it in a slightly weird way, and just hold on with just for me just a second, and I'll explain what happens. The herring are a fish that do this, and um, they are one of the fish that have a swim bladder connected to their guts, so they get air in through their guts to their swim bladder, and that's the same way they let it out, but not out of their mouths. Um, at night time, this happens. We know that when they're swimming around at night, herring are in a shoal and they use bubbles coming out of their swim bladders to communicate to each other so they know where they all are and so they can stay together in their shoal. But it comes out of their bottoms, and the scientists have called it the fast repetitive tick. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not kidding, here's the science paper that describes it. Here it is, the fast repetitive tick. So there we go. Thank you very much to our volunteers. Big round of applause. You can come sit down. Thank you. Yes. So, yes, fish, fish use sound in lots of different ways. There are a few that fart to communicate, um, and, and they are definitely noisier than you might expect them to be. Now, I think we should just have a moment to think about this question. What are fish? Perhaps some of you are wondering already. Um, what are these animals that I am talking to you about? Well. Probably think we can recognise a fish if it swam along. There's certain things you might look for. They are covered in scales. Thank you very much. Um, they have gills to breathe through. They generally live in water. They have a swim bladder like we've just been looking at. Um, they swim around with fins, which they flip around and use to push themselves through the water. But there are loads and loads of different creatures that actually we think of as fish. And I want to just quickly give you an oversight as a view of of what are the the wonderful diversity of fish and the kinds of creatures that we call fish today. And we're going to do that by having a quick look at the fish family tree. Now, today there are about 30,000 species of fish alive, so I'm not going to draw the tree for all of them. But this is essentially the kind of the big groups of fish that are particularly um, different to each other. And it gives us an idea of how they evolved as well. So we're going to have a little quick journey down the fish, up the fish family tree. Actually, let's start at the bottom Um, with some weird fish. I'm basically going to point out the ones that are slightly odd and hopefully you haven't heard of already. Um, The oldest uh, fish, we think the first ones to evolve, were jawless fish. They didn't, they don't have hard bones in their mouths with their teeth fixed to like we do. So we call them the jawless fish. And there's two types: there's lampreys and there's hagfish. Now. They're still alive today, but basically they're the direct descendants we think of these very early, early fish that first evolved. And they're not very nice. <laughs> these guys are really slimy. This is the thing about, we know about hagfish is that they, um, when they get upset or a bit disturbed, they make a lot of slimy goo. And it's a brilliant way of stopping themselves from getting eaten. You can imagine if a predator gets a mouthful of slime, he'll probably just spit it back out. Um, something really spectacular happened with hagfish last year. I don't know if any of you saw this in the news um, but it was in America, and there was a lorry filled with three tons of hagfish, if you can try and imagine such a thing. And unfortunately, there was an accident, mm. and this was the result. Um, <laughs> I should say that the reason there were three tons of hagfish in a lorry is that they were being transported. They'd been fished off the coast of America and were being sent to Korea, where people used the slime in cooking, apparently, um, instead of egg white so there's a big trade in in hagfish going to Korea but yeah it took a long time to clear up that mess so hagfish are pretty crazy creatures okay we're going to going to be a really quick trip up the family tree we're now going to jump up to this uh branch where we have sharks rays and chimeras now i'm sure you're all familiar with sharks basking sharks great white sharks and the rays things like manta rays and stingrays but i just want to mention these weird cousins of theirs the chimeras. Um, Here's a picture of one, and they're also called ghost sharks. They live in the deep ocean, so we don't know so much about them. They swim with flips of their fins. They've got weird things going on on their heads. The males have an appendage which they hold on to a female while they're mating. So there's fewer species of these, and they're quite strange, but they are the cousins of the sharks and rays. These guys are cartilaginous fish. Their their skeletons are made of soft cartilage, the stuff your nose and your ears are made of. We have bony skeletons, and the rest of the fish we're going to meet have all got bony skeletons. So these guys are a bit different. Okay, let's keep going. Now, the next branch is very interesting. We have got three, a trio of fish, which you should all be personally invested in, and we shall find out why. Um, we should all be interested in this, these three. We've got coelacanths, lungfish, and tetrapods, and I'm going to bring you, introduce you to all three of those. This is the coelacanth. Um, the weird thing about coelacanths is that for a long time, it was assumed that they had gone extinct, like the dinosaurs. It was only in the 1930s that somebody found a living one. Until then, all we had were fossils, and we assumed that they were extinct fish like loads of other fish are. But then a lady in South, um, South Africa f- found one. It was a fisherman had caught one, and she saw it and noticed that it was something very different. It looked like all those fossils that we've got. And she discovered that, in fact, coelacanths are still alive today. There are two species we know of living off the coast of Africa. Another one lives in Indonesia. And, and they're pretty cool. They're one of these three groups of fish that are grouped together on the family tree, and they play a really important role, role in, in life on Earth broadly, and I shall explain why in a second. Their cousins, the next on that little trio, are the lungfish. Um, this one in particular uh, died last year. His name was Grandad. He lived in an, uh, in, a, an, a, in an aquarium in Australia for 84 years, which is amazing, and he was already quite grown up by that point, so he was very, very long-lived. Now, lungfish uh, have lungs, funnily enough, Um, So fish did actually, we think, they probably evolved lungs before they evolved swim bladders, and that the swim bladder evolved from lungs. And there are various fish that do have lungs that they can breathe air. And these guys do it because they live in places, there's various species, but they generally live in places that can dry out. So where drought can hit and their water runs out, what are they going to do? Well, these guys, this is a drawing of what their lungfish get up to. They make a burrow, Um, they will basically... Uh, chew a hole in the mud. These guys generally live in rivers and swamps, that kind of thing. They'll dig a hole in the mud, turn back around, gulp a mouthful of air, and then slide back into their burrow, um, seal it up. Then they also make lots of slime, so another slimy fish like the hagfish, and encase themselves in mud. So like the world's weirdest Easter egg, they're inside this capsule of mud and they can stay there alive for four years. Breathing air and basically just getting by, waiting for the rains and the river to, go, to come back and for the water to return. So lungfish are pretty awesome. And I'm going to just trip right on to the third of our three and reveal to you why this is all very important for us to know these three fish. The tetrapods. Now, um, these are, uh, there are lots of extinct groups of tetrapods. And this is one in particular that was discovered recently. This is a reconstruction of a thing called Tiktaalik. And as you can see, he's not in the water. He's using his fins as legs. And we actually think that these fish show us um, how vertebrate life, how the fish that originally lived in the ocean, how they moved onto land. And this is how it happened. And these were the guys that basically made their way onto land using those fleshy fins that the coelacanth has and the lungfish also have. But these were the guys that make it onto land. And um, it's re- the reason it's important is because every other vertebrate, every other creature with a backbone that lives on land evolved from these guys. These are our ancestors. So this is what gave rise to the amphibians, the frogs and the toads. It's what gave rise to reptiles, dinosaurs and lizards and birds, which evolved from reptiles. Um, it gave rise to mammals. Rise to mammals, and it gave rise to you. So it means that looking at it a certain way, we're all. Um, we definitely all did derive from our ancestors were these tetrapods who are clustered together in this group with the coelacanths and the lungfish. You can see these question marks I've put on this graph here because actually we're still kind of figuring out exactly what uh, was going on in terms of which came first. But we definitely know that the tetrapods gave rise to all of the life we see, the vertebrate life that we see on land. So we are all fish. Now, I'm going to just jump very quickly up to the rest of the tree before we carry on, just to give you an idea of a couple of other weird groups of fish that have evolved and that are still around today. We've got these things called bichirs, which look like this. I think they look more like snakes with smiles, um, but they are still around. There's a few species of these guys. Um, we've got sturgeon. Now, sturgeon look like this, an incredible great big creature, beluga sturgeon. They're mostly known because people like to eat their eggs. Um, that's caviar. We call caviar the eggs of sturgeon. And sadly, there's 27 species of sturgeon alive today. 23 are at risk of going extinct because of this trade in their eggs. Uh, And they can be huge. It's an amazing photo of a beluga sturgeon. It looks like a whale. Um, So they're not doing so well, which is a shame. Um, Quickly going on up, we've got gar's. They look like this. And there are some that look a bit like alligators, but they are definitely fish. And then we're going to jump right to the top. So we've got this group of fish called the teleosts. And really, these are pretty much all of the fish that are alive today. 96% of all the species are teleosts. So we can look at an enormous diversity of fish. The eels, um, swordfish, flatfish, all sorts of creatures, cod, they are all teleosts. They have characters which are slightly different to all the other fish. So basically, if you see a fish, and it isn't a shark, and it isn't one of those other weird fish like a lungfish or a bishir, chances are it's a teleost. These evolved, um, we think, such diversity around the time that the dinosaurs went extinct. It could be because great big um, reptiles that lived in the oceans also went extinct. Maybe it paved the way for these guys to become super diverse. So there you go. Basically... Chileos are the ruling, amazing fish that we talk about today, and there's a few others, mostly sharks. (laughs) But that just gives you an idea of all of the different types of fish that we see. Now then, so we've heard about how fish make noises, perhaps rather unexpectedly. We've heard about how they can remember things. There are other things that fish do really, really well that possibly is a little bit surprising. And one of those things is that they can glow in the dark. Um, bioluminescence is what we call it, and we know now that there's a lot of fish that can do this. Now, here's a video, hopefully, oops, um, of one that you've probably heard of. Here we go. This is the anglerfish. Can you see that? It's all right. Maybe put. The, can we put the lights down a little bit? There we go. So the, the anglerfish has got. I'm going to take it back to the beginning. Anglerfish have got um, this lure, this kind of prong on the top of their heads, which they can like, flop forwards. So it's got a glowing bulb at the end, that white dot, and um, and that's to lure. Uh, food and pred- food in close because they think it's probably something to eat. Another little fish might think, oh, is that something I can eat? But ends up getting snagged in that really scary big, uh, big mouth. That's lovely. We can have the lights back up. Thanks. Um, so anglerfish are very famous for having this glowing uh, lure on the front of their heads. Um, but there are loads of other fish that uh, also glow in the dark. Uh, and the reason they do this, we think there's about 1,500 species that glow in the dark. A lot of them live in the deep sea. And that's not exactly rocket science because... It's very dark down there. And if you could imagine living in the permanent dark, if it was nighttime the whole time, if you could make your own light and control it, this would be a very useful thing to be able to do. And this is what fish have done. And we think maybe 30 times fish have evolved separately all across the family tree that I just showed you. They've evolved this ability to glow. So we've got anglerfish that use light to try and get their dinner. We've got things like flashlight fish, which basically have headlights on them that can see through the dark, which is brilliant. Um, we've got things like this guy, the velvet belly lantern shark, which is using light to tell other predators to leave it alone. You can just about make out, hopefully, in these rings here that it's got spines on its back, and it lights these up a bit like a lightsaber. Um, to say this is really nasty and spiny just don't bother eating me like this is a signal to the predator to say this isn't going to be good for either of us leave me alone um, I'm covered in spines let's just get on with what we were doing so, so it's using light as a warning now these lovely little sharks this is the full-grown version of one isn't that brilliant shark in the palm of your hand. Mostly sharks are much bigger than that, but uh, this guy is very, very tiny. Now, they also do something really fantastic with their lights, and you can get a hint of what's going on in this picture here. It has blue light all across its belly. Now, these guys live not so much in the very deepest part of the ocean, where it's completely dark. We call that the midnight zone. They also travel up into the twilight zone, so slightly higher up, where some of the sunlight still reaches down. Um, it's all blue, because the other colors of light, uh, the reds and the yellows and the oranges, have been absorbed. And that's, that's why the oceans are blue. It's because blue light reaches the deepest. And um, so it's a bit like, we call it the twilight zone because it's got this dark blue, deep blue color that you would see if you went out um, at, tw- at twilight here. And imagine if you did that, if you stepped outside at twilight and looked up to the sky, and if a bird flew over or a bat, you would see a dark silhouette. And this exactly the same thing happens in the twilight zone for fish. If they're swimming around and there's a predator underneath and it looks up, it might, it'll see this dark shadow and know that they can go and get some dinner. So it would look something a bit like this. So a lot of fish are using their lights to basically avoid getting seen, and they're using them really uh, to, to disguise themselves in this open blue ocean. Now some of them just have uh, lines across their bellies and lights to break up their silhouettes so they don't really look like fish anymore. But this little shark does something even more clever, which is covering its entire belly in blue light. And that means they basically disappear. It's like a cloak of invisibility. Um, And they can control how bright the lights are depending on how bright the, the, the water is at different times of day. And they can disappear. So it's absolutely brilliant. And lots of different fish do this, actually. They use blue lights to disappear in the twilight zone. Now, it's not only in the deep ocean that fish can glow. We also have some that live more in shallower waters. This is a pony fish. They live in estuaries and in shallow waters. And at nighttime, they will flash. And um, to have a, I want to have a go at seeing if you guys uh, might have a go at being uh, pony fish flashing at each other. Now, this will only work if lots of you brought with you flashlights. Did you bring torches? Did you get that message to bring a torch? Ah, no. Has anyone got a smartphone with a light on it? (laughs) How many of you have got smartphones with lights? This is only going to work if lots of you do. So let's see. Well, it's quite a few. (sighs) What do we think? I think it might work. So we need a a light on your phone that's going to flash on and off that you don't mind using. I think we could give this a go. Has everyone got their phones out? Excellent. This is good. Okay, so, so Ponyfish... Are a bit like fireflies. These—they're actually not flies. They're beetles that flash at each other um, and to, to communicate. Ponyfish do a similar thing. But you will see areas of the sea flashing in synchrony as they all flash their lights on and off in a certain sequence, which is specific to that species. So I want to see if we can get you all flashing in synchrony. Should we have a go? I'm gonna, we need someone to start this all off. I think maybe right in the middle somewhere. How about little girl there? Do you want to have a go at being our first ponyfish and you can set the pace for everybody else? Yeah, I think maybe we'll do something simple, maybe just one second off, one second on, roughly. So just flash and then off. Yeah, can you think you can do that? And then I want everyone else slowly. If you watch, perhaps we'll see if we can get the same, same flashing going on. Is that going to work? Should we should we give it a go anyway? It doesn't matter if it doesn't work, but let's try. Can we have the lights down? And I'm going to count you in. Are you ready? So the lights down, 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 down. Oh, my my ponyfish is a bit bright. I might turn him off. I'm about to turn him off a bit. Okay, that's fine. It's a bit darker. All right, okay, right. All right, if everyone is ready. So, lights off, please. Lights off. <laughs> Still some lights on. <laughs> Cover them up, actually. That's a good idea. You could just put your hand over it. Okay, and ready. If everyone's ready, we're going to go three, two, one, and start. <laughs> and off. Yes, she's, she, she's doing it white, flashing on and off. It's quite random. <laughs> Try and tune in together, see if you can all. It's very pretty. You're looking beautiful. I have to say, so you're doing a lovely job. I'm not sure we're quite in sync. <laughs> Perhaps, we need... Perhaps we need a bit more practice. But it's look I, I think, Jolly, well done. Give yourselves a round of applause for being a bloody good effort at trying to flash like ponyfish. Mm. Thank you very much. So yes, the idea is, I guess they have a bit more practice and a bit more time to basically flash all in sync across whole huge areas. And it's usually the males that are flashing at uh, the females and trying to attract their attention. Now then, uh, hopefully you're all wondering now, okay, well, how does this work? How are these fish um, flashing? They, they don't have smartphones. Um, they have two ways uh, in which fish make light. Uh, and it's roughly 50-50. Um, one half of them... Have a, have a chemical reaction that goes on inside their body. And this is what we're going to explain here. And um, they have genes that produce a molecule, which we call luciferin. It's actually lots of different molecules, but we'll generically refer to them as luciferin. They also have a gene for an enzyme called luciferase. And this speeds up a reaction with the luciferin and oxygen. So there's a reaction that happens with luciferin and oxygen. And this basically creates light. It's a chemical reaction that produces light and that's what happens in half the fish. The other half of the fish don't have these chemicals, but they basically work together with bacteria that do. And living in the ocean, there's loads of bacteria that have this ability to glow in the dark. Um, usually, you can't see them that much. There's not, they're not in such dense um, groups, but occasionally they do. And we have this effect that we have heard of for centuries, that sailors and people out in the ocean have seen the ocean light up with this milky, milky light. And this is because of bacteria that glow in the dark. And one brilliant example of this happened not so long ago. Some sailors off the coast of East Africa noticed that the sea had gone milky and bright. And some scientists found out about this, and they looked at the satellite images for that area on that night, and they found this milky sea. They could see it was so big it was visible from space. And they measured it, and this is a picture here. You can see the kind of bright blue smear um, in this bit of the map. It was 250 kilometers long, and they worked out that that means there must have been 15 billion trillion bacteria to make that much of the sea light up. So that's a five with 21 zeros after it. That's a lot of bacteria. Normally, they, they just don't come together in such huge numbers. But we do think that the reason the bacteria evolved to glow in the dark probably uh, is to encourage fish to eat them. Because getting inside a fish is basically the thing that a bacteria wants to do. Uh, Certainly the ones living in the ocean. It's a lovely place for them to live. They can have lots of plenty of uh, food. It's nice and protective. So if they can have a way of getting inside a fish, then that's great. And they do this by by basically sticking onto things, uh, bits of fish food in the water and making them glow. So bits of dead stuff, bits of uh, poo and shells from crabs. And when they light up, fish just doesn't seem to be able to resist a glowing thing and goes and tries to eat it. So that's how they get inside the fish. And then we think this has happened lots and lots of times. And then the fish have evolved lots of ways to use that light. And they evolve organs to keep those bacteria in. So we've got our pony fish. There's a ring of tissue around its throat, which it keeps its bacteria in. And then they've evolved clear windows. You can't really see it in this picture. But the side of their body is basically a little window. And the light shines out through that. Um, here is a, another type of anglerfish. There's lots of species. This one's called the illuminated net devil. Um, and this has two cool things going on with it. It's got, um, she, I should say, she is, this is a female, the males are tiny. <laughs> um, she's got this lure at the top of her head, um, which has got bacteria living in it. So that, that lure with the dangling end, that's bacteria. She also has this beautiful beard that also glows in the dark. But that glows through chemical reactions, so it does both. These fish have actually evolved both two different ways of being able to glow in the dark, and that is pretty awesome. So, now then, we have um, fish that glow in the dark, but there's another thing that fish do with light uh, that is kind of surprising. They mess around with light in another way, which uh, has only recently been discovered. And to find out more about this, I'm going to need some more volunteers. I've got three more volunteers. I think there's a hand up at the back there. Yes, little gun pink. Yes, you put your hand up before. Why don't you come down? I want one from over this side. Yes, how about you there? That's lovely. Off you, down you come. Now then. Thank you very much. If you'd just like to come and stand in front here in a row, all three of you, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get you to each hold um, a picture that I've painted. So if you could hold that one and just show everybody. Lovely. Thank you very much. If you could hold that one. If you could just come around this side and uh, on that side here, and I'm going to give you this one. That's it. Brilliant. So so I spent a lot of time painting these, and I hope you would like. They look brilliant, don't they? Okay. So maybe I'm not quite showing them off as well as they could be. Um, what we're going to do, I have got some special lights, which will hopefully make things look a bit more impressive. This one isn't special. This is just a normal torch light. It's just normal white light. But this one is a torch that only produces ultraviolet light. And hopefully then will, things will look a little bit more exciting. So if we could have the lights down, please. I'm going to start at this end over here with yours. You, you might already be able to see what it is because you're quite close. If we look with a normal torch, it's not particularly impressive. So let's have a look when we do it in UV. Ah, that's nice, isn't it? Is it showing up? Yes, so it's a seahorse. It is a nice red seahorse. Awesome. Brilliant. Okay, now what have we got over here? Let's have a go. Ooh. That is an eel, nice and green, and then there's a fish down here. That's my stonefish. I know it doesn't quite look like the one I showed you, but there we go. You see the stonefish glowing nicely, and then finally, I'm going to come down the end here. I should turn that one off. Here we go. What have we got here? Ah, So this is my shark. You like my shark? It's looking pretty nice with all its spots. Um, Thank you very much. Lights up, please. And a round of applause for our lovely volunteers. You can pop those back down. Thank you so much for doing that. Uh, (laughs) Thank you so much. So, what's been going on here? Now, um, I painted these pictures with a type of um, paint that has the same pigments in them that uh, a lot of fish, we think about 300 species of fish, have this ability to mess around with colours of light. And we call this fluorescence. Now, to explain exactly how this works, we have to remember that, wave, that light is made up of different wavelengths. The visible light we see ranges from short wavelengths of light, like uh, blues and purples. Ultraviolet is a bit shorter than 400 nanometers. Um, and then it goes to longer wavelengths, like the red, uh, wet red color. And what happens with, uh, with fluo, with a fluorescent pigment, is that we will get a light of a shorter wavelength. I used ultraviolet. You can also use blue. But if ultraviolet light falls on a fluorescent pigment, this excites electrons in that pigment, which then um, basically then release uh, energy in the form of light. But it changes the wavelength. So rather than emitting ultraviolet light, it emits a wavelength of a longer, uh, color of a longer wavelength. So it basically shifted the color from this end of the spectrum right across to red. We had reds and greens and, and orange. So the fish are basically using these pigments to, to shift color and make a different color than the light that's landing on them. So why are they doing this? Well, there's a couple of ideas. One is it's possible that this is, a, I, this is camouflage. Um, here's an actual photograph of a, a fluorescent stonefish um, under UV light. And the reason we think it's camouflage is that they live on coral reefs and corals are also fluorescent. They also glow in the same way. Um, The reason they do that is they actually have chlorophyll inside them. That's the pigment that plants and algae use to harness energy from the sun. Um, And they have algae inside them. They're animals, but they have algae living inside them too. Not too important, but basically just to know that corals do glow um, in this fluorescent way. So maybe the stonefish are doing the same thing, just to hide. Perhaps they've evolved this as a form of camouflage. We've seen how they like to sit tight and not move and wait for food to come to them. Um, I should point out that um, it's not this spectacular in nature. Fish don't swim around with UV torches shining the lights on each other to make them look really beautiful. Um, you can do that and I've been diving with ultraviolet, uh, with blue lights at night and you can see how the fish and the corals shine up, light up and it's, it's like a magical world. Um, but in, uh, in nature it's much more subtle but it does happen and we are getting an idea that the fish really are using this possibly uh, to even communicate with each other. Now we need to remember that, um, that red lights, sh- those long wavelengths of light really get absorbed very quickly in the ocean so you don't get much red light beyond the first few meters. Blue goes all the way down but red gets absorbed so there is- isn't any red light around. So what these fish are doing is they're basically making a missing colour. They're creating red when there isn't any red light. They're taking the blue light, which there's lots of, maybe the ultraviolet light, and turning it into reds, which isn't normally there. And perhaps they're using this to communicate. So this is a recent study with this little guy called a fairy wrasse. The bottom picture is it in ultraviolet and that's it in natural light. And um, we think that basically these patterns they're using to communicate with each other. Um, we've done this, well, scientists have done this um, by, bas- these are very angry little fish. and. Um, They are very uh, very angry and they don't like seeing other members of the same species anywhere nearby uh, because they basically think they're going to steal their territory. Um, And they aren't actually the most clever of all the fish because all you have to do is put a mirror in front of it. It thinks it's another fish of the same species and tries to attack it. Um, So you do this under normal light and that's what they do. But if, you, if we then put a filter on the mirror which blocks the red light, so you, they can't see these red patterns, these fluorescent red patterns, then suddenly they don't, they don't care anymore, and they don't—they stop attacking their reflection, which gives us the hint that maybe. These patterns are basically identifying that species. It's a bit like uh, a football kit or a sports kit. It's the colors and the patterns that show which team you belong to. And maybe fish are using this special kind of strange graffiti uh, to to make those patterns and to make each other uh, obvious to each other. It is all very new. Scientists are still looking into this. So maybe we'll find out soon more about how fish glow in the dark in this rather strange, strange way. Okay, right. Now then, I'm going to finish off I think we've just got time to finish off with one more group of fish uh, that are one of my favorites, and I think a lot of people's too. And I'm going to bust another myth. The fish are these guys, seahorses. We've had a seahorse already. and um, A question that basically comes with these strange-looking animals, which is basically why do they look so strange? What is it about seahorses that means they don't really look like fish at all? Um, For a long, long time, scientists were pretty stumped, had no idea what these guys were. They thought maybe they were insects or shrimp or something, Um, but they are fish. They have a backbone. We can tell with genetics now that they're definitely, definitely fish, but they don't look anything like a fish. In fact, they kind of look more like they just swam out of the pages of a fairy tale. Um, Sadly, they don't do this. They don't grow this big. I'd like to to ride around on a seahorse. That'd be quite nice. Um, But... Yeah, they they look like miniature dragons or miniature horses. These are very strange-looking fish. Um, But we don't need fairy tales to explain why seahorses look the way they do. There's some lovely science, which I'm going to take you through now, which explains recent studies, really, that explain all the different strange parts of a seahorse. So we can really understand... Uh, why they look like that. And it helps us to get more of an insight into why things do evolve in certain ways, why they look certain ways, and give us more of an idea of the lives of fish and the lives of seahorses. So we're going to have a look at three of the big main weird characters of a seahorse. And let's start at the bottom. Let's start with the tail. So seahorses have a tail that's a bit more like a monkey's tail than a fish's tail. They don't swim by swishing it from side to side, but they use it to hold on to things. It's prehensile. And seahorses really, really like to hold on to things. Um, I f- took this photograph in an aquarium of a seahorse holding on to a pipefish. That's one of its close relatives. We'll come back to him in a second. Um, really love to hold on to things. Here's a picture of a seahorse holding on to me. Um, I can tell you that they do hold on quite tightly. Uh, they're quite strong. So, so really a bit like s- stonefish, seahorses have this life that's very still and slow. They don't want to swim fast. They've adapted to a life Of the ambush predator they want to sit still and wait for food to come to them and hope that nobody notices that they're there so they camouflage themselves brilliantly here's a seahorse camouflaged in some seagrass here's can you see this one this is brilliant tiny tiny seahorse there it is Um, this is a baby one but they don't get much bigger Um, On a a coral, on a coral fan, these guys only live on these fans, and they have this brilliant camouflage with these pink nubbins, and you can just see, I think, his tiny tail, where's my pointer, tiny tail wrapped around there, so they use their tails to hold on, basically, so they don't get swept away in the current, um, and they can just sit tight, save their energy, and wait for food to come to them, and... Scientists have recently done some really cool studies on seahorse tails, including trying to work out one more strange thing about them, which is why they are square. Seahorses have square tails. This is a scan of a seahorse tail and the different bits of it. You can see the pink uh, is its, uh, its backbone down the middle. This is its vertebrate coming down there. And then it has these, basically they're scales that have been adapted into more like a suit of armor across the body of a seahorse. So what these guys did is they scanned these seahorses' tails and then they've made 3D printed models of them... And then they also made round ones. So they have got the normal square-shaped tail, and they did some round ones too, over here. And then they decided to have a look at how strong they were, and whether circles and squares were different, by smashing them with hammers, basically. Um, and uh, to see how, uh, t- how well they protected that, because what they're really trying to do is protect see how well-protected that vertebra is inside the backbone. And it turns out, yeah, that square shape is a really, really good shape for doing that. Um, The circle is less strong. Um, So seahorses have, yeah, they've evolved a square tail to help protect themselves as well as to help hold themselves in place. Um, And it's a really good way of holding onto things, too. So here are the two two 3D-printed tails. And you can see that the circle one is here. This is the square one. And this is better at holding onto things. It gets a better grip, basically than the circular ones so it's a really great piece of evolution that seahorses have got these fabulous tails and now like so much stuff we find out um, in science and in nature maybe we can copy the seahorses and start making robots with seahorse tail arms and things like that so there we go that's the seahorse's tail makes perfect sense when we understand that they live these lives of very quiet sitting around not moving very much Now, let's move to the head, that miniature horse's head. Seahorses aren't related very closely to horses. Um, They're up there with the tetrapods. Seahorses are a teleost. They're right at the top of the family tree. So why do they look like they've got the horse's heads? Well, um, it comes down again to the way that they feed this idea of being a stealth predator that sits still and waits for food to come to it. Because you might not imagine it. Uh, These cute little seahorses don't look very scary, but they are voracious predators, especially if you happen to be... One of these guys, a copepods. Um, these are members of the zooplankton, little tiny animals that live in the ocean, in the water, and in fresh waters. The favorite food of seahorses. And they're very, very good at catching them. And their, the shape of their head and their snout helps them to do this. Now they feed in a way that we call pivot feeding. And I'm gonna show you a little video of a seahorse feeding in a second. And you'll see just how brilliant it is at doing this. Mm-hmm. This is real time, so you're gonna to have to watch really carefully to see it moving. So they basically just slowly, slowly line themselves up with that long snout, and it pivots upwards. The dark dots are the copepods, these flicking things here, and if you watch Rick, it's gone. <laughs> They're, they have something like a 90% hit rate. I'm going to play that again um, with the food, uh, their hunting technique. Um, and part of the reason is they have this long snout which helps them to reach towards the, the copepod without getting too close. And they don't make any ripples in the water, so they're like stealth hunters. And it's all down to the shape of their head. I should say that they have this neck, their their heads are bent over, that's very unusual for a fish. Uh, Most of them don't have necks, we have a neck, which means we can bend our our backbone that continues up to our skull, bends around so we can see in different directions. Fish don't do this apart from seahorses, and it helps with this way of feeding and this, this pivot feeding method. Um, so really the whole shape makes them these stealth predators that don't disturb the water and they glide slowly up and catch these amazing copepods that otherwise are really hard to eat because they swim incredibly fast. So there we go. The, he- the shape of a seahorse's head is all about its feeding. And we've got down to the final piece of a seahorse. I'm a bit running low on time. What do you think? We, are we allowed to stay for another couple of minutes? I've got, I, want to, I want to do a little thing which would take more like another 10, 7 minutes. Or I could quickly do it myself without a volunteer. Sorry, I'm going to have to keep you in your seats at this time. I've run out of time. We're going to explain very quickly how seahorses got their pouches. So why have they got this big belly? Um, And the most surprising fact about seahorses is that they are the only animals we know of in the world in which it is the males that get pregnant and give birth not the females. And they do so in this pouch, which they re- rear their babies inside. Um, and it's a really wonderful, wonderful process. Um, Quick, you might be wondering already, you're going to ask me, OK, well, why is it a male then? Quick answer to that is that uh, females are the animals that produce eggs, which are large and don't move. Males produce sperm, which are small and do move. They come together, fertilize to form an embryo. Easy, done. Um, so the male seahorses are the ones that get pregnant. And so I guess the question is, well, how did this evolve? Um, and I'm sad, because I was going to show you. But perhaps if anyone wants to come afterwards, we can have a little go at evolving a seahorse in front of you. Um, and I'm going to probably just take you through the steps in my pictures. Um, we can understand how seahorse pouches evolved by looking at other animals that they're related to and that do similar things that we think their ancestors did. And this guy is a stickleback. These are little fish that live in sw- um, streams around Britain. Um, and They are pretty cool because the males um, lay eggs, uh, no they don't lay eggs, <laughs> of course they, don't know. They, they, they make nests on the seabed. The females come along, lay their n- n- eggs in the nest um, and uh, the, fe- the male fertilizes them and he looks after them, so he cares for the nest of eggs. And I guess the point here really is that once the eggs have been laid, it could be either of the males or the females that look after them. And often it's the females who clear off and the males stick around. And this happens a lot in fish, but it particularly happens in this group of fish that uh, the uh, the seahorses belong to. So imagine an ancestor of seahorses a long time ago built a nest on the seabed and uh, had the eggs there. But that's not maybe the best way of doing things. Predators could come along and nibble those eggs. Uh, so how about carrying those eggs around with you? Okay, I'm going to do this very quickly. Here is my pipefish. See, it's not a snake. It's definitely a pipefish. Um, that is the ancestor of seahorses, we think, as well. So we had the stickleback and then come the pipefish. But instead of laying nests, nests, having a nest of eggs, they would carry their eggs around on their bellies. So we were going to stick <laughs> some eggs onto the belly of my pipefish. So that's another strategy. So instead of having uh, those eggs lying around that are quite vulnerable, they could carry them with them. And we actually see pipefish that do this today. So it's also quite handy. (laughs) You don't have to look at that. It's not particularly (laughs) brilliant. Um, It's a good way of of keeping those eggs a bit safer. They carry them around. Sea dragons, another relative of seahorses, do the same thing. They carry their eggs. And it's the males that do this. That's the important thing. Okay, so first step is carrying the eggs. But um, they're still quite exposed, and those eggs could easily get knocked off. So the next step in the evolution of a a seahorse being pregnant is that they have flaps of skin down the side. I'm just going to stick these on. Um, So they've evolved basically a bit more protection so that the eggs don't get knocked off. And you just have a little bit of extra space, a little bit of extra um, structure. And this is what this pipefish has. I think this one um, has a little bit, kind of basically a groove down its belly. The eggs are laid in that groove, and it stops them from falling off. Next step in this evolution of pregnancy um, is for pipefish that we still see today that live uh, on the bottom of the um, sea. They don't swim around so much, but they sit around. And for them, it could be quite easy for things to come, predators to come and eat those eggs. So they've evolved a tube to cover up their eggs, uh, which is all wonderful, a bit more protective. Not really pregnancy yet, but certainly a male that's looking after its eggs quite nicely. And then it's only just one step further to imagine if we closed off that tube (laughs) this would have worked much better if i had help i'm sure but there we go if we close off that tube into a belly a pouch that's fully sealed with the eggs inside all we then have to imagine is that the fish is upright with its head and its curling tail (laughs) and we have something (laughs) something relating to a seals like this You'd have done it much better. I should have given you more time. Anyway, you get the idea, hopefully, that you've got this lovely, um, great, you've got the pipefish that are showing us all the different steps. They happen to be pipefish that are alive today that probably did what the ancestors of seahorses, they do what ancestors did uh, of carrying the eggs and then looking after them a bit better. And the whole thing ends in the male and female coming together. The female puts her eggs into the male's pouch fertilizes them and he looks after them for a couple of weeks and then something really amazing happens and I'm going to just finish on a little video clip of that pygmy seahorse we saw earlier doing that very thing. Hopefully. Okay. Try again. Go on. One more time. There we go. Brilliant. Watch carefully. You know what's going to happen, right? Here they come. So can we have the lights down a bit? You see this last shot here. You see that they come out fully formed, and these ones are amazing. They're huge compared to the size of the, the male, but yes, they give birth. They huff and they puff, and they give birth to a, a whole herd of tiny, fully formed baby seahorses. And that's how the seahorses uh, evolved to become the only animals with male pregnancy. It just hasn't happened to happen. It hasn't happened in any other animals, only in the seahorses. Um, so their bodies are strange. They don't look like fish, but they are. They've just evolved to have a very particular way of life. That is all the time I have. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much. If I have whetted your appetite, sorry, if I've whetted your appetite, you would like to know more about fish. Um, I have a new book coming out, The Eye of the Shoal, comes out in May. and uh, You can have a delicious 30% off. There are... Um, <laughs> Uh, I think we're going to have some flyers at the back as you're going out. If you want to grab a flyer, you'll get 30% off on a, on a pre order. I talk lots more in the book about weird fish, things they do, and why they are just the most fascinating group of animals in the ocean. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you.